All right, well, good morning, everyone. I brought this water bottle with me today in case anyone in the front row falls asleep. It's going to squirt you like I would my cat. Actually, I don't have cats. Cats are terrible. That's for an illustration later. So uh, my name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's a privilege to be with you this morning and be able to open God's word. We are kind of in between series here. Well, not kind of in between series. We are in between series next week. We start our Advent Christmas series, and we just finished our 10 weeks in prayer series, and that for me has been uh, transformative and a wonderful series in my life and continues to be that. This morning, we're going to be in Daniel 3, so it's not entirely disconnected because uh, we just heard from uh, Habakkuk and from Jeremiah 32, and they're talking about what we're going to be seeing today. So ushers are coming down the aisle. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love to get a copy in your hands this morning. Just put your hand up. They will... Get that to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that can be our gift to you this morning. Um, How many of you um, are familiar with, like, movies that begin at the end? They kind of give you this um, cliffhanger moment. They build some suspense, and then they go back to the beginning, and they will give you all the details that you need to understand how we got to that suspenseful moment, and then they'll reconcile that issue they created, and then they'll finish the movie. It's kind of like the show This Is Us. Raise your hand if you've seen the show This Is Us. Okay, it's somewhere in like its third season and it starts by giving you the end. The dad dies and then you have all of these shows that kind of like give you all the details between him dying and the, uh, the beginning. And so that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at God's word and we're going to see a cliffhanger, sus- suspension building moment and then we're gonna go back And we're going to see how we got there. But before we do that, um, I'd like to pray for us this morning. Father God, it's a blessing to be in this place this morning and to be able to worship you. God, I am um, privileged to bring your word. And God, I ask that this morning that you would fill this place. Lord, we're not here out of routine, but we're here because we want to hear from you. We want to meet with you. And so, Lord, would you do in this room what only you can do? Would you penetrate the hearts and minds of men? Would Would you change us, Lord, this morning? May your word be powerful. Would you allow me to only say what you would have me to say? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you're in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to jump in here in Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to begin our story here this morning. I'm actually going to jump in at verse 13. So you might have to turn your page. Verse 13. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigen, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Do you feel the tension here? Not really. You guys have seen this movie before. You know, you know, what, you know what happens. You know how it ends. Maybe you're more familiar with the VeggieTale version, Shaq, Rack, and Benny. You guys know that one. This is most definitely a common story for us. We know the story of the fiery furnace. So I would just encourage you guys this morning, it may seem familiar, but stick with me because I believe that God is going to show us fresh truth this morning from his word as we look 
and how these men got to this place and what they did when they were given the option of bow or burn. So we're going to jump back in to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to see what happened and how we got here. Um, They're going to be on the screen. If you want to stay in Daniel chapter 3, you can, or you can follow me in Daniel chapter 1. I'll put the verses up above us as well. It says in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Then the king commanded uh, Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the youth of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youth without blemish and a good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's also the Babylonians. So these are young men. They're most likely teenagers. They are handsome. They are well-educated. They are full of wisdom, and they are cultured. So think the opposite of Dan Cook. (laughs) You know what? The best part of that picture might be the other Dan Cook with the white hat on. Do you see him looking at Dan Cook? You guys can take that down. It's really distracting. Um, Okay, so here's what's happening. Um, Judah is actually conquered twice by the Babylonians, and this is the first time that they're conquered. And what Babylon would do when they would conquer a nation, and, and, and Judah was no exception, is they would leave them largely autonomous. So, so they still had a king, and they could still kind of uh, run their own country, but they were under the rule of Babylon. And so what Babylon would do is it would take the, the kids of the nobility. It would take the brightest and the smartest and the, the most attractive kids of the nobility, and they would take them back to Babylon. And the idea here was that if Judah or any other nation got the bright idea to to rebel, then they had hostages. And they would kill all of these men, all of these nobility, all of the royalty would be dead. And so this was a way of keeping people under control. So these men are in some difficult circumstances. They are teenagers. They are taken from their families They will be made eunuchs. If you don't know what a eunuch is, don't Google it. Ask a friend. (laughs) They will never have a family. They will never return home. Their names will be changed. They will be forced to learn another language, and they will be forced into slave labor for another king. And this is difficult because not only is this something that's happening, but these are people who would have normally enjoyed a higher standard of life, and so they are going... This this would be like... um, Is it more difficult to adopt a child from Liberia to America or from America to to Liberia? You know, this is, it's a huge dramatic change. And so when you come into this place this morning, I know all of you, every one of you brings a trial with you. And I would venture to say that if we took the time to understand where each of you are at, that this particular trial that these four men are facing would be comparable to any in this room, if not worse. So we are going to see how they respond to this trial, and we together are going to learn how we can respond to our trials. So let's see how they respond. Verse 5, it says, The king assigned them a daily portion of food and that the king ate and of wine that the king drank. Okay, so here's what's happening. They're in, essentially, they're in college. It's a three-year training program where they are taught the traditions of the Babylonians, the language of the Babylonians, and they're essentially educated to be wise men for the king. And they are offered the king's food and the king's wine. Verse 8, but Daniel, and that also includes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, resolved that they would not defile, he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. This brings us to our first point this morning. 
Small decisions determine big directions. Small decisions determine big directions. It's very clear there in verse 8, it says, but Daniel, and again, that would have included his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, resolved that they would not defile themselves. You see, they understood the dietary laws that God had placed over the nation of Israel, and they knew that the king's food was contrary to what God had already set up for them to do. And they decided in something as small as diet not to compromise. And everyone would have understood It would seem as though even God himself would understand because they are taken captive and they are not given a choice. It would have been easy to eat the king's food. It was the best food and wine in the world. Think Turks in Nunica. (laughs) That's funny. It's okay, you can laugh. I eat there, it's good. But here's here's what they do. They don't compromise on something as small as diet, when the compromise would seem obvious. And so it begs a question for us this morning. In what area of our lives are we quick to compromise? I think far too often, if you compare the life of Christians to non-Christians, they don't look that different. They just don't look that different. I think we find ourselves compromising on many small things, and we don't often give a lot of thought to it. Some things like the people we date. If you're single, do you compromise on dating a non-Christian? Do you compromise on the sexual boundaries that you know you should keep because that person is pressuring you and after all, everyone else is doing it? We do a lot of premarriage counseling here and more often than not, the couples that come to us, believing couples have decided to engage in sex before marriage. And they come here because they want a Christian wedding and they want their marriage to be blessed by God, but they don't understand that when you decide not to follow God, he's not going to turn around and bless the thing that you're doing that's not obedient. But they compromise because, after all, this is the person they're going to marry anyway. It seems logical, it seems easy, but it's a compromise. Maybe you're a student in the room and you find yourself compromising because it's easy to share answers or to give answers. It's really easy to find a paper on the internet that somebody else wrote, change a couple things and make it your own. It's easy to cheat on tests and yet you want God to bless your effort because you wanna get into a good school and you wanna get a good job and you wanna have a bright future but you're compromising. And you think it doesn't matter because it's a small thing and everyone's doing it. Adults, you know where we like to compromise is our finances. We wanna make sure that our Retirement is funded and the boat payment is made before we give to God. We want to make sure that we have everything that we want, not need, want. We cheat on our taxes. We don't record all of our income. We worship money like it's the thing. And we compromise and we look an awful lot like the world around us, chasing material possessions. So here's these men, they're not compromising. They're saying this small thing of diet that everyone would understand if we did, we will not do it because we want to honor God. And that decision we're going to see leads to a place where they can make much bigger, more important decisions. Okay, so here's these men and they request of the chief steward, you see it in verse 12, here's their request. Test your servants for 10 days. 
Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Parents, this is biblical proof that if your kids eat their vegetables, they will grow up to be big and strong. <laughs> it is also the reason that I drink coffee and eat donuts and don't drink water and eat vegetables. I don't need to get fatter. The story continues in verse 17. It says, as for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We'll see that's important later. Verse 18, at the end of the time, so that's the end of the three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, and the king spoke with them, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. You see, God blesses this small act of obedience. And the small decisions that you make determine big directions in your life. You can't expect to have character in the big moment when you don't have character in the small moment. It doesn't work that way. You don't turn character on. It's practiced. It must be practiced day after day after day. And so we need to ask the question. Where in our lives are we compromising on something that seems small instead of honoring God? So chapter 2 starts in this story, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it's, disturb it's disturbing to him. He doesn't know what it means, and so he calls some of the wise men in, and he asks them to interpret the dream, and they cannot. And so, as is the king's practice, he's furious, and he decides he's going to kill every wise man in the country because they can't do their jobs. They're no good to him, so he's just going to kill them all. Daniel catches word of this fact, and he goes to the king, and he says, give me an opportunity to interpret your dream. And then he goes back to his roommates, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, men, we need to cry out for God's mercy that we will be spared. And so they do, they pray to God, and Daniel receives a vision, and in the vision, he gets the king's dream, and he gets the interpretation of the king's dream. And so he goes before the king, and before he interprets the dream, he says something that I think is important for us to see in Daniel 2, 2 verses 27 and 28. It says, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. That would include Daniel. Daniel is a wise man. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You see, even in this moment, Daniel, who has the ability to interpret dreams and visions because he's been given it by God, we saw that in chapter one, he doesn't go in there and think that he's done anything. And I wonder to myself, how often do I go through my day over and over and over again under my own strength because God has given us and myself the ability to do a lot of things in a day on our own strength. But Daniel doesn't do that. He recognizes and he gives credit where credit is due and he says, I can't tell you, but God can tell you. And he does. He tells the king the interpretation of the dream. We see the king's response in Daniel 2, verses 47 through 49. It says, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. 
So we're almost caught up. If you're in chapter three, you can open that up again. We're gonna start there, but we are almost caught up to that moment that we saw the suspense building. What will these men do? And we're beginning to understand the character of the men and how they got to this place. So Daniel chapter three, if you're there with me, you can look at verse one in your Bible. It starts with this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. Okay, so it's 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. It's a little disproportionate to human measurements, but this is a really, really tall, skinny statue. It's a golden image of himself. And then he calls all of his officials together. Everyone who works for him in the entire government from the highest level to the lowest level, he calls them all together and he says to them in verse 6, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigen, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I want you to notice something about the king. It was only a few verses earlier, at the end of chapter 2, that he said, Truly, your God is God of God and Lord of kings. And then he almost immediately runs back to worshiping a golden image. And I will confess to you this morning that it is easy for me in my life to say, There's God. He is good. He is big. He's amazing when he shows up in the biggest moments of my life. But man, do I run quickly back to a golden image. I run back to something else that I focus on and I fall for. I focus on and I fall for. I run back to something and it's not God because I acknowledge him in the big things and then I go on and worship other things. I think that's true of all of us. I want to take a minute and just talk about what are some of the golden images that so quickly grab our focus instead of God. I think for some of us it's marriage. If you're single in this room, there's this idea that if I find the right person, then I will be happy and I won't be lonely anymore and this person will fulfill me and complete me and I, I will live happily ever after. If you're married, you know that's not true. It doesn't... <laughs> doesn't work that way but you're looking to a person to do for something that for you that only God can do only God can fill that need to be fully known and fully loved maybe you're already married and you have this idea that your marriage should be like Hollywood says that it's full of romance always and that there's happy endings and you never work and always go out to have coffee that's not true either Life is hard, and marriage is much more sanctifying than we'd like it to be. Maybe you've realized that's not it, and you've moved on to kids. And you think that if you have kids, one, two, three, four, that these little bundles of joy will be it. This will be the thing that, that, that makes you happy. And it captures your focus, and you worship your children. And children have the ability to give us almost unlimited joy, but they have the same ability to bring us almost unlimited heartache. If they choose to not follow God and make poor decisions, and you're putting a weight on your children they were never meant to bear, and if you treat them like gods, they will accept it. 
and they will think they are, and you are setting them up for a very painful reality that they are not God. And we focus on our children sometimes. Some of us love to focus on our country. Midterm elections just ended, and for some of you, that was a very tumultuous time. It mattered a lot to you who was elected. Because in your mind, if the right person gets in office, and if the right justice is on the Supreme Court, and if the right president is in, then we can make changes, and this country will be Christian again. And we can set up laws, and we can legislate morality. It doesn't work that way. Only God changes the heart of men. But we put our hope in a system and people that cannot change a country. Some of you actually treat social media the way Nebuchadnezzar treated this golden image. You portray an image of yourself that's shiny and bright and golden and fake. And you post all of the fun pictures of you with your kids and you're out with your friends and you're eating great food and it's fake. And yet somehow, even though you know it's fake, you look at other people's fake lives and it makes you discontent. And you think, why don't I have that life? Why don't I have that vacation? Why don't I have that food? Why don't I have that friend? And we worship a false reality and it captures us. You want to know what mine is? I love to worship comfort. After a long day at the office, there's nothing more that I want is to come home and sit on the recliner and have my wife feed me grapes and have my sits kids sit quietly at my feet and wait for some wisdom to pour out of my mouth. It has never, ever happened. I mean the wisdom part. That part's never happened. But when I don't get it, I am angry. Because here's what I think. I've worked hard all day. And I tell myself, I deserve this. I deserve this. How many of you are retired or hope to one day retire? Should be every hand. Like a 12-year-old over here raising his hand. <laughs> the American idea of retirement isn't biblical. It's not biblical. We created a system where we think that if we work for a certain amount of time that we are owed a season of our life where we get to do whatever we want to please ourselves where we get to pursue our own comfort day after day after day, and it is inconsistent with the gospel. It doesn't work that way. Should God give you the financial ability to stop working a nine-to-five, he has given you the greatest opportunity of your life to serve him with what time you have left. That's what retirement's supposed to be, not this idea that now that I've done my part, I've served enough, you can never serve God enough. I've served enough, I've worked enough, I get to do whatever I want with my time and please myself. And we all plan for it. Everyone raise their hands. We're hoping for a time in our life where we can just serve ourselves and it's not biblical. How many snowbirds in the room? Don't raise your hand. Snowbirds, for most of you, the reason you go somewhere warm is simply for your own comfort. Because if it stayed warm here, you wouldn't leave. You are making a decision to worship comfort. And it has consequences because now you're not in one Christian community, you're in two. 
and you're unable to really serve because you're never here long enough. You're not really in community because you're never here long enough. You're not really in accountability because you're never here long enough. And you make a decision to essentially live two separate lives. And it affects your ability to serve the Lord because you're choosing comfort. A little too close to home, I bet. That's the reality of the decisions that we make when we choose to worship something that's not God. There's a man, his name's Dave Opitz. He's 74 years old, goes to our South Campus. Some of you may know him. He's been in the community a long time. His wife's name is Squeak. That's a great name. Squeak Opitz. He's 74. Dave, at a young age, had a desire to work with youth. And so he spent his life working sometimes full-time in church context and sometimes working full-time outside of church context, but serving full-time as a youth pastor in the area. God, at some point, gave him the ability financially, though he never made much, to retire. And at 74 years old, this is how he spends his days. He goes into non-Christian middle schools, and he has lunch with the kids every single day. And he shares the love of Christ with them, and he cares about them, and he goes to their sporting events, and he goes to their band concerts and choir concerts, and he points them to Jesus. He never planned when he was younger to serve himself when he was older. And I think for a lot of us, instead of meeting with our retirement advisor, we should meet with a pastor and say, how can I spend my retirement in service to the Lord instead of service to myself? I want that. I want my last days to matter for the kingdom. What's the golden image in your life? What is that thing that you fall for when you focus on? All right, so the image is up. Most of the people have bowed. We know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow. And some of the Babylonians see them not bowing, and they don't like these men because they've been promoted, and they're not Babylonian. And so they go to the king, and here's what they say in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they were brought, these men, before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigen, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our second point today is when I am facing the fire, I can have either way faith. When I'm facing the fire, I can have either way faith. These men 
are faced with a difficult decision, bow or burn. And they acknowledged that while God can save them, even if he doesn't, they will follow him no matter what. There's an either way faith. It doesn't matter to them. I think this is a difficult thing for us. Maybe it's, God, my wife has cancer and it's taking her life and I know you can heal her, but even if you don't heal her, you are still good and you are still God and I will still follow you. God, my finances are a disaster and my business is failing. God, I know you can fix it, but even if you don't, you are still good and you are still God and I will still follow you. God, my kids are running hard after the world and I know you can grab their hearts, but even if you don't, you are still good and you are still God and I will still follow you. God, my marriage is on the rocks and I know you can redeem it, but even if you don't, you are still good and you are still God and I will still follow you. That's an either way faith. Either way, I will follow God. They didn't get here by accident. They didn't get to a place of bow or burn and have either way faith by accident. So there are four keys that we see from their lives that allow us to have either way faith. Here's the first, know God's word. Go back to the first chapter. In the first chapter, they are asked to eat the king's food, but they knew the dietary laws that God had set up for them. And because they knew the dietary laws that God set up for them, they knew when the decision came, which food should we eat? The decision was easy because they knew what God asked of them. And then, when they're asked to bow to a golden image, they know the Ten Commandments. They would have known that. They would have known that God says, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not create for yourself any carven images. And so they would know God's word. And in the moment of making a decision, it would be obvious what was the right thing to do. And so in our lives, if we want to have an either way faith, we need to know God's word. When the difficult decision comes, we need to understand what God would ask of us. How can we follow him if we don't know what he says? These men knew, and you see it in their lives, and we need to know God's word as well. The second one, practice obedience in the small things. Practice obedience in the small things. Right, these men get to this place because they decided to make a small decision of diet. And for us in our lives, it's not about being ready for the big decision requires us to make Many, many daily small decisions of obedience. I don't get to get up tomorrow and run a marathon 26.2 miles if I haven't trained. It's going to go poorly for me. That's a big decision. But if I run a little bit every day and I exercise and I eat right, when the moment comes to do the big thing, I'm ready because I've practiced. You cannot expect to be faithful in the big decision if you haven't been faithful in the day-to-day. And so we have to practice day-to-day -day obedience so that we're ready. Number three, keep an eternal perspective. These men do not care about their lives. They're not caught in the moment as if it's the only thing that exists. So often in our lives, when it comes to our trials, it's as if the, it's the only thing we can see. 
It's all-consuming. It will never end. The pain is too much. It's all I pray about. It's all I think about. It's all that my life is about. And we can't see beyond this circumstance. But if we could lift our eyes and we could look out to eternity, we would see beyond what's happening. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 put it like this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I don't know about you, but I have literally never in my life described a trial as light and momentary. This hasn't happened because in the moment it feels eternal and it feels heavy. This is how God's word describes your affliction, whatever it is today. It is light and it is momentary. And why is it those things? Because eternity is forever. In fact, the verse says that whatever you're going through is preparing you for eternity. It's a good thing. Verse 18 says, We look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they're here and then they're gone. The thing that you see in front of you that seems like it will never end is going to be here and then it's going to leave. It's transient. And part of having an eternal perspective is having the right focus. Remember our big idea, I will fall for what I focus on. James 4, 13 and 14 remind us, reads this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is your life. You want to see it again? There it is. God's word says that your life is a mist. It's here, and then it vanishes. And I want you to think about this. If this is the entirety of your life, that moment that has captured every part of your attention is a droplet amongst thousands of droplets, and yet somehow it is the thing that matters most to you. Do you get this? Because an eternal perspective allows you to see that circumstance that you're facing as a droplet in a life that's here and then gone. Eternity is forever. And if you can have an eternal perspective, whatever it is that you're facing, you can say it is short and God is good and this is preparing me for something so much better. Number four. Remember, you're not alone. In your fiery furnace, remember, you're not alone. The text is going to show us this. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than its usual heat. Verse 23. And these men, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. God is with them in their fiery furnace. And whatever your trial is, God is with you. And he may seem distant, but he is right next to you. He knows every detail of what you're going through. He is keenly aware 
and he is with you. He did not send his son to pay the penalty for you, to free you from sin so that he could leave you alone. He walks with you day after day after day, and he's given you his Holy Spirit, and God is with you in whatever your fiery furnace is. And if we can remember that we need to know God's word, and we need to practice it daily, and that we need to have an eternal perspective, and that God is with us, when the fiery furnace comes, we too can have an either way faith. Verse 26 is going to wrap up our story. We're going to finish here. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects, the governors and the kings and the counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads were not singed, the cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trust in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Our last point this morning is when I'm faithful in the fire, other people focus on God. When I'm faithful in the fire, other people focus on God. You see it in the text. The king notices, all of his officials notice, and they come around these men and they observe what God has done. And when we are faithful in our trials, it is the greatest opportunity to display your faith in God and to point people to Jesus. Take two men, both of them with good careers, good marriages, good kids. And if you talk to them, they'll both say life is good. But strike them both with cancer. Take their jobs, put their marriage on the rocks, and talk to the one who's not a believer, and he will say, what's happening? Why is this happening to me? Life's not fair. It's not worth living. Talk to the believer, and he will say, I have a peace that passes understanding. I have a joy in the Lord, and he is with me. And I have an either-way faith, because if he takes me, I get to go to glory, but if he leaves me, I get to serve him, and God is good, and I love him. And it is in our fiery furnace that our opportunity is the greatest to point others to Christ. I want that kind of faith in my life. There's a couple in our church, Larry Dykster House and Shelly Dykster House. Larry recently had open heart surgery, fairly major op uh, surgery, and before they went into the surgery, Shelly said to her husband, this is a ministry opportunity. So they went in and she sat in the waiting room and he was under the knife and she began to work her way around the room praying for people one at a time. People started to line up. And she... Uh, she found a woman who didn't have hope, shared the gospel, led her to the Lord. She wasn't concerned about her husband's outcome, though I think she was. She was most concerned with serving her Savior. Either way, faith. 
I want that, and I know you want that. I know we want to have a faith that we say, God, no matter what, I follow you. Let's pray. God, we confess this morning that we often fall for things that are lesser than you. God, I confess that I am quick to worship comfort that is the thing that grabs my attention and pulls my heart away from you. God, I don't want that. God, I want my attention and my focus to be on you day in and day out. God, I, I ask that you would forgive me when I don't practice obedience in the small things, when I compromise for the sake of ease or fitting in. God, I wanna follow you every day. God, I want to have an either way faith. Would you allow me the strength and courage when times seem most difficult to say either way, I will serve my God. God, what a privilege to point people to Christ. God, we in this room, we, we, we beg you to give us an either way faith, to allow us to be obedient, to allow us to point people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.